what's so interesting and unique about the Bible? These 40 different writers writing on three different continents over a period of 1,500 years, writing on the most controversial subjects, yet it all tells one story with one hero. That is the book that you hold in your hand, and it is the self-revelation of God. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. Glad you could join us today for the second message in the series, Think, Christianity in High Definition. Today, we'll hear Pastor Trent teach on the doctrine of revelation. Let me invite you to open your Bibles right now to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Last week we began our series entitled Think Christianity in High Definition. And we learned that the goal is not to think, the goal is to know God and to love God, to obey God, and to enjoy God. But in order to do that, there is a means by which we know Him, and that is that we think. And so we are going to look at some of the most basic doctrines, the, the big mega themes of Scripture that we find, and we're doing what we call systematic theology, which means we're bouncing all over the Bible. And uh, normally we just kind of take a paragraph of Scripture and run right through that, and, and yet we're just going to be flipping pages everywhere. And if you can, try to get to the place in your Bible because you want to mark it up, and it's like, yeah, this is where that doctrine is, and it's related to this scripture over here. Uh, I had the privilege this week of taking my two oldest children who will be seniors in high school this coming year, and we've started the process of looking at colleges, and there's a college down in Louisville, Kentucky called Boyce College, and connected to Boyce College is Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and, and uh, when we took the tour, we looked at the cafeteria and the bookstore and the admissions office, and while all that was going off, I snuck into the systematic theology class uh, at Southern Seminary, and uh, I was just in heaven. I was just breathing the air there, and I was thinking, and I was surrounded by people that were thinking, and, and yet it wasn't just this big group of fatheads. These people loved God, and uh, they wanted to know Him, and they wanted other people to know Him, and they were pre preparing for a life of ministry. And so uh, we're kind of doing that. You may feel like you're in a systematic theology class, but again, we're going to do this in a way that uh, we our goal is not just to think, but is to love God and to know God. And so today, we are talking about the first of seven doctrines that we'll look at, and it is the doctrine of revelation. Now, that is not in reference to the last book of your Bible. That is in reference to God's ability to reveal himself to blind people, you and I. You see, if we're going to know God, we've got two options. Either we can speculate or God can revelate. Either we can speculate, which means we're going to have to dig into things like philosophy and psychology and sign of mystical spirituality, and we can get around and, and cross our legs and do some ohms and think about the fuzz in our belly buttons and somehow just kind of figure, maybe we could figure God out. That's speculation. That is man's attempt to know God. Revelation is God's successful attempt 
for him to be known by men. And so we are not dependent upon our ability to speculate. We are dependent upon God's ability to make himself known. And so we're talking about the doctrine of revelation. Oh, I forgot something down here. You know, I told you I moved uh, from Michigan to Indiana this past week. And, and so I've, I've actually touched and found everything that I own. And in one of the places, uh, in, a, in a very secret location, I found this. Do you know what is in this envelope? These are all of the love letters that Andrea Green wrote to Trent Griffith over the course of the time that we were getting to know each other, pre-marriage, and I saved them. And periodically, when I'm not quite sure I'm still lovable, I pull one out just to make sure that all of these things are really true, and and I'm not even going to attempt to to read these things to you, but I, I could get really diverted right now. And you know what was happening? Now, you have to understand this. Those of you that are under the age of 25 years old, this was 1993 and four. This is before Al Gore invented the internet. So there, there, was, no, there was no email. There was no Facebook. There was no texting. This is pre-cell phone. You couldn't even pull the phone out of your pocket and talk. You had to go find one that was attached to something and stay there. And so the only way that I could get to know Andrea is through her self-revelation by writing something down, buying a stamp, sticking it in a mailbox, and then it traveling across the country and arriving about three or four days later. And we had this long-distance relationship, but over the course of... Um, about a year and a half, we got to know each other through written words. And that is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He has revealed himself through written words. Now, when we talk about the doctrine of revelation, there's kind of two aspects of revelation. There is what we call the general revelation and there is what we call special revelation. So how does God reveal himself? First of all, God has revealed himself in the heavens. God's word in the heavens. Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day by day, pours out speech and night Tonight reveals knowledge. The knowledge of God at some level can be known when you stare up into the sky and see those little bright dots. Or you go to a mountainside or you go to a beach and you look and there is something to be known about God. The fact that he is big. He's bigger than me. And there is something to be known. He is he's quite creative. And so that is what we call some of the general revelation. We can see God's word in the heavens. Secondly, still in the aspect of general revelation, there is God's word in our hearts. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 speak of this. For when Gentiles, now Gentiles were the group of people to whom God had not yet revealed himself to. God had revealed himself to the Old Testament Hebrew Jewish people, and that's why we have uh, those 39 books in the Old Testament as God revealed himself to those 
Jewish people, but we get to the New Testament and we say that we see here that the Gentiles who do not have God's law, they didn't receive a copy of God's revelation in the law, they by nature do what the law requires. Now, isn't that interesting? Nobody told them to act this way, but they're acting that way anyway. Why are they doing that? Something on the inside of them is telling to do, telling them to, to obey God's law. He says, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. So we have God's word in the heavens. We have God's word in our hearts. And then thirdly, and here's where we get to the idea of special revelation this is when God speaks so specifically that we can know everything we need to know to have a relationship with him. And that is God's word in our hands. What's in your hands right now? And we're not talking about reading your palm, okay? What's in your hands right now? It's a book. God wrote a book. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and you've got your Bibles now open to this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 say this. And it is a command from Paul to his young disciple Timothy. Timothy's planted and pastoring this church, and Paul's writing back. And look at the very first word. He says, Timothy, continue. Don't give up. Don't let anybody persuade you. Don't think that you need something other than what you have been doing. Keep doing that. Continue in what you have learned. So there's something to be known and something to learn. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Where had Timothy learned about the sacred writings? The Bible tells us it was his mother and his grandmother that apparently had knowledge of these sacred writings, maybe even some access to a copy of these sacred writings, and that faithful mother had communicated to this son and grandson, Timothy, what God had said because God wrote a book. What is this book about? What are these sacred writings? Well, it's obviously what you hold in your hands. Where did the Bible come from? Where did we get this? Who decided that there would be uh, these writings and there wouldn't be other writings? And What is all of that? Well, you need to know something about your Bible. One of the best places to learn something about your Bible is to open it up to the table of contents. You don't need to do that right now. But you'll find that there are 39 Old Testament books. There are 27 New Testament books, which we call our Bible. It was written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It was written over a period of 1,500 years, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Actually, the oldest book we believe is the book of Job. And most Bibles are not typically laid out in chronological order. They are laid out in thematic according to genre style. And so when you read, you're not reading a chronological period of 1,500 years. It was written by 40 different authors, written on three different continents. It is in two testaments, a total of 66 books, and it is the best-selling book of all Time. 
It contains 1,189 chapters, and all of the chapters were added later. God did not inspire the chapter divisions, but just like you have an address, and if you wanted me to get to your house easily, you could tell me the address, and I would know how to get there. And somebody decided, you know, it would be, really, be so much easier if the preacher could stand up in church and say, turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and you would say, okay, I know where that is, and there's an address. And so those were added later. So there's 1,189 chapters. There are th- over 31,000 verses. There are 783,137 words in the English Standard Version. And you know what's so interesting and unique about the Bible? These 40 different writers writing on three different continents over a period of 1,500 years, writing on the most controversial subjects, all agree. They talk about... um, all kinds of controversial subjects like marriage and divorce and adultery and homosexuality and parenting and, and obedience to authority and money and the nature of God, and yet it all tells one story with one hero. That is the book that you hold in your hand, and it is the self-revelation of God because he wants you to know who he is. Not only to have factual knowledge of him, but just like my relationship with Andrea, he wants a covenant relationship with you that endures for eternity. Now, the Bible has been preserved throughout 2,000 years, even though it has always been under incredible attack by men who don't believe it. As a matter of fact, this book that you hold in your hand is the most burned and banned book in the history of the world. I'm sure that probably all of you, most of you, have been impacted by uh, books that have been written recently, and it's just the last few books that have been written in a long line of books to try to disprove the Bible or discredit the Bible, and and many of you have been impacted by the book or the movie, The Da Vinci Code, and in that book, of course, uh, it's a novel. The the author, Dan Brown, tells us it's a novel, but in the book, it, it plants some thoughts in our minds about whether or not this book that we hold in our hand is actually reliable. And in the book, one of the characters, Lee Teabing, states this, the early church needed to convince the world that the mortal prophet Jesus was just a man, but the church needed Jesus to be God in order to control power. So he says that this mortal prophet, they needed to convince the people that Jesus was a divine being. Therefore, any other quote-unquote gospels that describe earthly aspects of Jesus's life had to be omitted from the Bible. So the idea is that there were these these stuffy old religious people in a room and and they were trying to maintain power and so they needed to craft a book that was written so that they could exert their power and control over other people. And there's all these other writings out there that contradict the Bible and and of course they couldn't let those in. And that's kind of the plot line. in the midst of it, we find out that, quote, you know, they think Jesus was married and had kids and his descendants are still on the earth and you might even be one of them. And, and that, this is kind of the story. And, of course, the Bible doesn't say any of those things. And so what about these lost books or these lost gospels? The reason they were omitted is because they were heretical in nature and they were written decades after the Bible was written. 
they weren't credible and they're not consistent and they contain heretical things and they signed their name as apostles that they weren't even. And so there's a lot of reasons. And F.F. Bruce says this, the church no more gave us the New Testament. In other words, the, the, the leaders of the church no more got together and decided what would be in the Bible. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon. We call it the canon, not like a canon that you fire, but a canon is, is a complete work. So he says, the church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity and by his work of creation. And similarly, God gives us the New Testament canon by inspiring the books that make it up. And so the church just got together and acknowledged God had revealed himself through sacred writings. Do you know that the Bible could not even exist today in 2014 without God supernaturally preserving it. It was written on highly perishable, fragile material, and it had to be hand-copied. You couldn't go to the Xerox machine. You couldn't pull up Google and search for a verse and and print that out. It had to be hand-copied for over 1,500 years before the printing press was ever even invented by Gutenberg. Josh McDowell says this, it never lost accuracy, it never faced extinction, even though we don't have the original documents compared with other ancient writings. The Bible has more manuscript evidence to support it than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. There was a famous antagonist toward the Bible, a philosopher, a French philosopher named Voltaire. And during Voltaire's lifetime in the 1700s, he predicted that Christianity would disappear and the Bible would be completely eliminated within 100 years of his lifetime. Ironically, 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home and has been using that home to print Bibles to distribute throughout Europe ever since. Voltaire is gone. God's word is very much alive and active. The Bible is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. And we do well to pay attention to a book that God has written. So what is the Bible? We're going to try to answer that question here today, and we're going to answer it in five simple statements. First thing is we need to understand that the Bible is eternally true. The Bible is eternally true. You've still got your Bible open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 16 now. All Scripture is breathed out by God. If you have a new King James or a King James Bible, the word that you see there for God breathed is the word inspired. All Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and is profitable for four things. The Bible is profitable for four things. For teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's think about those four things. What does the Bible do? It teaches me. Again, if you have a King James Bible or uh, one of the other translations, the word is doctrine. The Bible is profitable for doctrine. It teaches me what is God like. 
How will this world end? How should I raise my children? What is truth and what are lies? The Bible teaches us that. The Bible is, is also profitable for reproof. So if the teaching or the doctrine that we are given in the Bible is profitable to show me the path, that's doctrine. Here's the path I need to be on. Then secondly, reproof is to show me when I have gotten off of the path. And so there are times that we read the Bible and it hurts. It stings. It's like God shot an arrow into my heart when I read that. Because my life is going this direction and God's word says I should go this direction. And it reproves me. It spanks me in a sense. And it hurts. A lot of times when I'm talking to people as they're leaving church, they're like, thanks a lot. You really stepped on my toes today. I'm like, dude, I'm just reading the Bible. I don't make this stuff up, man. I'm, I'm just the messenger. You, you were reproved by the message. So if teaching shows me the path, if reproof shows me how I've gotten off the path, the third thing is correction. The Bible tells me how to get back on the path. You're over here. Get back over here. And here's the way you do that, through repentance, by turning around. Stop going that way. Stop loving that. Start loving this. Stop hating this. Start hating that, and it tells me how to get back on the path. And then finally, the fourth thing, it's profitable for training in righteousness. That word training is an interesting word. It's the word pedia. We get our word pediatric from it. Training to help somebody go from immaturity to maturity to teach me how to live right. So teaching, here's the path. Reproof, here's how you got off the path. Correction, here's how you get back on the path. Training in righteousness, here's how you need to stay on the path. And here's what's at the end if you'll do that. Now notice it says that God's word is breathed out by God. It's inspired. I'm not into teaching Greek, but there's a great Greek word here, okay? You want to impress your friends, you want to sound like a Bible fathead, use this word. The word breathed out in the Greek are the words Theonoustos. Try that on your friends. You say, what, what does that mean? Well, the, the idea of noustos, if, if you're a mechanic or if you work on cars, you have some tools in there. You have some pneumatic tools. Pneumatic tools are powered by what? Air. And so when God says that this book is breathed out. It is the sense in which air passed over the vocal cords and came out of God's mouth. It was something in God that came out of him into my ears. It is breathed out. If you have pneumonia, remember the, the words are Theonoustos. If you have pneumonia, that is a disease of the breath box of the lungs, pneumonia. And so we say the Bible is inspired. Now, here's what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired. Remember, we're looking at Christianity in high definition. The inspiration of the Bible states this. Here's the doctrine of inspiration. The influence of the Holy Spirit on the writers of Scripture, which resulted in their written words actually being the words of God. Now, that doesn't mean that somehow God put them in a trance and just kind of guided their pen on the page, and they didn't have a clue what they were doing. 
No, God used the experiences and the vocabularies and the personalities of the writers of Scripture to accurately record what you and I need to know about God and His world. So, the inspiration of the Bible. Inspire comes from the word theonoustos. If you're inspired by somebody, it means that somebody breathed into you. To perspire means to breathe out through your skin. To expire means you breathe for the last time. To conspire means people get together and breathe together and do something together. Some people believe that the Bible was a product of men who conspired. We believe it was the product of God who inspired men. Now, not inspired the way that Adam got inspired when he wrote those really cool songs that we sang this morning. No, inspired in a way that what resulted was actually the will and the ways and the self-revelation of God. So when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, some people have some unbiblical thinking about that. Some people have a conceptual inspiration. They say, I, I believe the ideas in the Bible were inspired. That's not what we mean. We believe the words were inspired. We believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. Some people uh, have a theory of inspiration. We call it the con containment inspiration. And they, they say things like this. I believe the Bible contains the Word of God. Not the Bible is the Word of God, but somewhere in there, there's some good stuff about God. That's not what we mean. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Not that parts of it contain God's Word, but that all of it is God's Word. Some people have a confessional view of inspiration. They say things like this, I believe the Bible is inspired where it speaks of faith and practice, but not in history or science. That's not what we mean. We believe in the verbal, plenary, infallible inspiration of Scripture. The Bible is not a history book. The Bible is not a science textbook. But where it speaks to history and science, it is accurate. We believe that. Some people have a corrupted view of inspiration. They say things like this. I believe the Bible has been corrupted by men, but not by God. And what they're saying is God made a good attempt to get his revelation down into men, but he had to use men to do it. And men are fallible, so you can't expect men to produce anything that was infallible. God was good, but man was not. And so how can you have a book that was written by men that accurately recorded something from God? And what they're saying is God couldn't get it done through infallible men. We believe that God can use crooked men to produce straight lines. And so we believe in the verbal, plenary, infallible, inerrant inspiration of Scripture. In short, we believe God wrote a book. And you have a copy of it in your hands. It's the doctrine of inspiration, and it teaches us that God's Word is eternally true. Do you believe that? 
Say it with me. I believe God's Word is eternally true. We've been listening to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. We'll hear part two of this message next week. We'd like to invite you to one of our weekly worship services at Harvest Granger. Join us Saturdays at 5 p.m. or Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit harvestgranger.org. We hope you'll join us again next week at this same time for Resonate with Trent Griffith, a ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. Granger.